on the prequel to the 24th episode, we're learning about cautionary tales and previewing Jurassic Park. Hello and welcome back to the prequel to the 24th episode of This Film is Lit. Today we're just two segments, no review. It's going to be a nice quick episode, nice and clean. We're going to talk about cautionary tales and then preview Jurassic Park. So let's get into our discussion of cautionary tales. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Katie, why are we talking about cautionary tales this week? Seems relevant. Why? Why would a cautionary tale seem relevant to Jurassic Park? <laughs> there you go. Okay, I don't I, know. Yes. Maybe we'll find out together. Yes, we'll learn together. But yes, obviously Jurassic Park is a bit of a cautionary tale, so we thought that might be a relevant topic to discuss. We've got a bit of the history of cautionary tales, where they come from, why they exist. So Katie, let's jump in. Hit it, hit it, hit us up with that knowledge. <laughs> So a cautionary tale is a type of folklore. Um, it's one of the oldest forms of story that there is. It's right up there with like creation myths, um, your kind of explanatory mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you start thinking about it, there are a lot of pretty well-known examples of cautionary tales. Um, the Fall of Man. Hey, like one of the first ones. Well, Very the first old ones, story. Yes. Right? It's a cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. Don't eat the apple. Don't eat the apple that you wouldn't know not to eat until you ate it, but don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of fairy tales are cautionary tales. Yeah, um, most yeah. of them. Little Red Riding Hood yes. is a, a well-known danger. example. Yeah. Um, and I'll be talking about that one a little more in depth. Use it as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of urban legends are framed as cautionary tales. Yep. Um, for example, you should not canoodle with a lover in the middle of the woods at night because you might get murdered by a hook-handed man who escaped from prison. True. That could happen. That could happen. It's at least happened once, probably, so it's <laughs> true. Don't have regard. sex, kids. <laughs> Definitely don't. It's the worst. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about your note here, just to point it out, you wrote can-doodle. And it made me oh, chuckle. I did. <laughs> Instead of canoodle, it says can doodle. And I was like, oh no. And it didn't catch that as a spelling error. Because you can doodle. Yeah, but it's all one it's word. All word. Yeah, it's all, I, know. I know I can doodle, but it's not one word. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Moving on. Um, historically, cautionary tales have been used to encourage conformity mm-hmm. to some type of social standard. Um kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cautionary tales discourage behaviors like curiosity and exploration. Um, stuff that... Sure, individuality, individuality yeah. Like um, you know, things that sure can cause trouble, yeah. but are also positive things. Yes. Um, On the other hand, one of the reasons that cautionary tales are often found in children's literature is that they're used to teach positive behaviors, like responsibility, or good manners, or how to stay safe. Mm -hmm. Like, don't talk to strangers. Yeah. Yeah. I think what it, it, the, one of the, the best thing, or with cautionary tales, a lot of times, the double-edged sort of is it, 
of it is the double-edged sword aspect of it is it has to be simple to some extent for mm-hmm. kids or it they generally tend to be simple to uh, make it easy for kids to digest mm-hmm. and when you boil down moral messages to their simplest form it it removes nuance and thus uh they aren't as useful right ultimately right well and with something like don't talk to strangers or sorry what am i jumping ahead no, no. It's oh, okay sorry go ahead I thought you were going to say something. Either, um, well, I was going to say that the other thing you have to remember with a lot of examples of cautionary tales is that they are coming to us from a very different time. Right. And, you know, a story that encur- that discourages something like curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um few hundred years ago if you were going to die because you went and investigated oh what kind of snake is that you were definitely gonna die if that snake bites you makes sense to discourage that behavior okay yeah um now we have modern medicine so maybe we don't need to discourage that right and yeah i i think the thing like i said it's just there's a lot of times there's very little nuance yeah and because it's for kids and and we like to think that kids can't understand nuance and depending on the age maybe you know they can't admit but uh so that when yeah when you when you get rid of that nuance of don't don't wander off and look and, and look at snakes if that's your message or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, you, you sort of uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, but, but some snakes you can go look at. They're cool. And you should want to look at snakes. That could be a fun thing to do. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, it's a double-edged thing. But it, they work. And in, and in, in the time period you're talking about where it was potentially life or death to a right. lot of these things, it makes sense to sort of boil it down and make it easy for kids to be like, yeah, just don't go... Don't mess with snakes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, it's it's fun to go uh, explore the forest. Yeah. For example. But if you're definitely going to die because you went into the forest, yeah. you probably want to discourage that behavior. Yes. Yeah. So, like a lot of um, older types of stories and stories in general, um, the cautionary tale has a specific format, right? A specific mm-hmm. structure. Um, it has three distinct parts. So I'm going to break this down, um, and I'm going to use Little Red Riding Hood cool. as an example because awesome. I feel like most people are yeah. at least um, marginally familiar at with the story the, of the Little, Red Riding, Hood. Of yeah. Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. So, part one: a taboo is stated. Um, something is said to be dangerous or to be unacceptable. Um, that might be a behavior, a location, a thing, maybe even a person. Or another character in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when Little Red Riding Hood is about to set off to her grandmother's, her mother specifically tells her not to stray from the path because it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. There are wolves in the forest. You can get lost. You know, it's dangerous to stray from the path when yeah. you're in the woods. Yeah. Part two: someone disregards the warning. <laughs> This is the inciting incident. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They do the thing. They go to the place. They interact with the person. Whatever it was that is had that has been forbidden in part one, they disregard the warning and they do the thing. Mm -hmm. Little Red does leave the path while she's traveling to her grandmother's Mm -hmm. house. 
And part three, the rule violator comes to some kind of unpleasant fate Mm -hmm. as a result of them having not heeded the warning. Um, In most popular versions of Little Red Riding Hood, and we're getting a little sticky here because there are a lot of changes in different variants anyway. But yeah. In most popular versions, she does get eaten by the wolf. Mm-hmm. Classically. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. There's your three-part structure. Taboo is stated. It is disregarded. And then they meet their comeuppance for disregarding said rule yeah. or thing. If you leave the path in the forest, you get eaten by wolves. That's what happens. There you go. So, what's the homework for everybody? So here's our homework. Um... I want us to think about whether or not Jurassic Park fits into this three-part structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we watch the movie, we're going to try to identify each part within the narrative of the, fil- of the film, and I will do the same thing for the book, Cool. and we'll see what we get out of that. Awesome. That sounds like a fun little exercise to do with Jurassic Park because it's a movie you've seen a million times and most people have seen uh, mm. quite a few times because mm-hmm. it is yeah, one of the more popular movies of all time I would imagine. It's up there I, I would have to yeah, say it, the it top is. 100 or top 50 of like most famous movies of all time maybe you know mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not you think it's like one of the best movies but like just in terms of like widespread most people have seen it. Jurassic yeah. Park's real high on that list yeah. like Jaws and that's you know a lot of Spielberg movies. Well, and it's but. one of those two where, like, even if you haven't seen it, you recognize the references yeah. to it. You're, you're familiar with the oof. That's yeah. not the right word. But you're familiar with the, yeah, the um, the sort of cultural implications and mm-hmm. the cultural touchstones of the movie. Yeah. So. All right. Awesome. That was a brief discussion of cautionary tales. We're going to move on and preview Jurassic Park. How fast are they? Well, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Well. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. So... Uh, now that you're a little familiar with it, let's hit up, uh, I'm sure, I'm assuming you went and found some fun facts. I did. Cool. I mean, some of them may uh, intersect with mine. Maybe not. We'll see. Because they, they're they so close in release. and Yeah. Uh, this was very much written from my under... It seems like Crichton very much wrote this book with the thought that it would become a motion picture. Um, at least it's what it seems like from the, mm-hmm. the notes or the stuff that I've been reading. So, what do you got? About the book. All right. So Jurassic Park, a novel um, written by Michael Crichton, mm-hmm. published in 1990. Um, he also wrote the sequel, The Lost World, mm-hmm. which was published in 95. Um, and in 97, those books were repackaged as a single book titled Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park is like 400-something pages long, so I can only imagine how long that repackaged one was. Yeah, probably like 800 pages. Yeah. Probably, if not longer. Um, so the novel began as a screenplay um, in its like kind of early mm-hmm. 
stages. Which is one of the things I saw that made me think maybe the whole time he was kind of thinking, I want to make a movie out of this. Um, The screenplay was about a graduate student who tries to clone a pterodactyl. Which, by the way, I spelled correctly on the first try when Pterodactyl. I was writing these notes. Pterodactyl. There you go. Spelled it Let right. me try it. Hold on. P-T-E-R-O-D-A-C-T-Y-L. He did it. Boom! Pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? Um, the initial draft of the novel was told from the point of view of a child who was present when the dinosaurs escape. Mm-hmm. Um, but Crichton changed it to an adult's point of view because everyone who read that early draft really intensely disliked that element of it. Hmm. Like, hated like it. Like being from the point of view of a kid. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, like, was it, I guess you maybe you don't know, I wonder if it was, like, in the voice, like, we're hearing the thoughts, essentially, of... Yeah, maybe. You know, like, like when you're reading, um, I don't know, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what that would be like. Because, I mean, you still have a sort of a kid POV, not POV, but that that type of idea in the movie with the mm-hmm. two kids. Yeah, that element sort of is still Their sort of reaction and, and, and dealing with the circumstances of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. But I actually have, I have a little bit more about the point of view. Okay. Um, the novel is told in third, third person limited. Okay. Um, so what that means is that... Right, it's in third person, so it's not. Um, we're not getting the I voice. Right. It's he, she, yeah. they. Yeah. Um, but it's limited, so it's not an omniscient not an narrator. Omniscient narrator. Um, it's not like an overarching narrator that knows everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example of limited third person that people might be familiar with is Harry Potter. I was about to say Harry Potter. Yeah. Is, yeah. It's third person, but you're limited to. Harry. Yeah, it's like Harry's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what Jurassic Park does is switch from character to character. Um, and that's kind of important for the reader because what I'm noticing is that it kind of undermines the idea that this story has a hero. Hmm. Um, there are characters who are maybe a little more sympathetic. Right. But... There's not really anyone who seems good enough to escape potential uh, comeuppance right. in part three of our cautionary tale. Yes, there's nobody that you're thinking for sure they shouldn't get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the story revolves around the idea of a theme park because Crichton felt that that was the most logical route to go with his narrative Mm -hmm. um, since genetic research is obviously very expensive. Yeah. And there's not really a practical reason to bring back dinosaurs. Yeah, I might argue. I don't know. I I, I would be arguing out of ignorance, but I I would imagine that there may be some very interesting science you could do that would be very uh, enlightening in terms of genetics. I mean, sure, for like the purposes of of research. research. Yeah. But and then and then well the other angle that we see in the newer movies is uh, weaponizing and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing yeah like the you know working with the military which I is a little silly to me but well that's yeah. a discussion for a different day <laughs> <laughs> so yeah a, a theme um, park or like a yeah a park makes sense yeah makes a and lot of he sense. felt like that would be like obviously the reason for recreating dinosaurs would be for entertainment oh yeah you. people would hundred percent yeah. go look at dinosaurs yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. I would sell my 
left lung <laughs> to go look at dinosaurs. Yeah, it would be awesome. I don't know who would want my lung, but I would sell it. Um, so there is a lot of science in the book. Mm-hmm. There's like a ton of research behind this story. Yeah. Um, I am not familiar enough with the concepts discussed to right. know how accurate it is. Yeah. Like, so it might just be science babble, but it's good sounding yeah. science yeah, babble. Yeah, fairly reasonable sounding yeah. science babble. Um, and of course the book is also almost 30 years old, so mm-hmm. not all of the information has aged well necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the narrative effect of including that real world science is still there. Yeah. And it's still good. And I, I, from my understanding, the the basic premise in the, the from the movie of pulling DNA out of mosquitoes mm-hmm. and encased in, I'm assuming this is similar in the book, um, is is bunk. Like that's mm-hmm. not. But but the idea behind it and then using it and inter- and crossing the DNA with another animal or mm-hmm. you know using another animal, it's it's pretty fairly like reasonable like it, of how you would do it. And it, it sounds Although it probably wouldn't be frogs. I think I, I, yeah, I, it would probably be birds of some probably. sort. But yeah, but yeah, the I think you're right. I think that the mosquito DNA thing has been they've talked about. It. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't persist but that like. Yeah. The important thing is that it sounds super plausible. No, it sounds super plausible. Like yeah. you're like yeah, that would work. Like that totally yeah. seems like it would make yeah. On the surface, it totally sounds reasonable. Um, the novel was incredibly well received. Um, almost a, a bestseller, almost overnight. Um, it's considered his signature novel. Now, yeah. hmm. um, he's a pretty prolific author. That's yeah, that's a, yeah. yeah. High praise for that one. Um, the New York Times said it was a superior specimen of the Frankenstein myth. And easily the best of Mr. Crichton's novels to date. And Entertainment Weekly said it was hard to beat for sheer intellectual entertainment. Huh. There you go. So, most people liked it. Yeah. I'd be interested to see. I, I, I am I'm kind of interested to read it. Because I always do have a a part of me that that is not a big fan of cautionary tales that are like, don't do science. Not, not that it's saying don't do science. But yeah. that... I, so I would be interested to see how it's portrayed in the book, because um, the the movie I never really I mean it, that's a, we'll, we'll we'll get into it more, but it was always just such a fun movie to watch. I never mm-hmm. really thought about the implications of the sort of morale, like the message of it. I was just right. like, watching fucking dinosaurs eat people. This is awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know that kind of that kind of thing makes me weary of the, that whole thing of like, ooh, should we? Well, we have I the mean, science, I, but should we? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think... Like, I, I would disagree with the idea that something like this is inherently anti-science. I'm not saying it is. I'm, I'm just wondering. Because, I mean, to me, like, like we definitely should think about right. whether or not we should... Like, we shouldn't do things just because yes. we can. Yes. Because like, science, I think, without some kind of yeah. morality yeah. or whatever behind it is just mad science. Well, there's there's a, there's a whole branch of science that is the uh, ethics and the morality yeah. of research and, and, and uh, yeah, of science. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's definitely an important aspect, and it's something that scientists think about constantly. Maybe not all of them in, you know, the general person working in the lab. But, like, as a whole, as a field, there are a lot of people in the dedicated to the morality of research and, 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 and science and thinking about those big philosophical questions mm-hmm. about what 
okay, if we have the technology to do this, should we do? That's a, a important aspect of what a lot of right people, we, we of have, ethicists, yeah. scientists, scientific ethicists, or whatever do. And so. we have to think about the consequences. Mm-hmm. What are the consequences of bringing back a billions of years long dead giant, yeah, carnivorous, yeah, monster beasts? Yeah. And that is voiced by the wonderful Dr. Ian Malcolm. All right, let's get in to the fun facts for Jurassic Park, the film. John, the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, oh, there it is. Life uh, finds a way. So, uh, as was, we discussed, before the book was even published, studios, Warner Bros., a bunch of different studios, Warner Brothers, Columbia, TriStar, 20th Century Fox, and Universal had all begun bidding on the, mm-hmm. the, the, the rights to the make the movie, even before, yeah, before the book was even published. Oh, that's the dream, man. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, incredibly successful film, very prolific, like most people have seen it. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, during its release, the film grossed $914 million worldwide. It was the most successful film ever up to that time. Uh, surpassed E.T., another Spielberg, mm. and was surpassed four years later by Titanic, obviously. So Michael Crichton was also very involved in the screenwriting process. Um, mm-hmm. Spielberg was interested in or uh, directing this before, again, before the book was even published, Spielberg was interested in the story and uh, wanted to work with Crichton to finalize the it was eventually written by a different guy that i can't remember the name of i don't think i wrote it down but um ultimate like the the screenplay credit goes to some other guy but mm. Crichton was involved in the process so so originally the plan for the dinosaurs in the movie uh in order to uh, portray the dinosaurs in the film was to use with uh, a process called go motion mm-hmm. which is basically a version of stop motion filmmaking where uh with stop motion, you're taking still for you, you. You build, uh, you know, clay models or models mm-hmm. or whatever, and you take a picture and then you move it a micrometer and you take another picture and you move it a micrometer mm-hmm. and then you play all those pictures back and it moves. So the Nightmare Before Christmas, Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, all of Leica's movies, mm-hmm. um, all of those. Go motion was very similar. It's just they used a a process uh, of the, where they added a motion blur so that because part of the problem with and why stop motion can look a little strange sometimes is that because each picture is a perfectly um each frame is a perfectly uh sharp image mm-hmm. and it cuts from sharp image to sharp image oh uh, you get that jerky kind, kind of, of jerky look. kind of yeah. it just doesn't it looks a little off mm-hmm. and there's a, a go motion basically was a way to try to limit that by using i think they something even said like they used like just like a filter basically to try to add motion blur to it to make it look more smooth and more realistic to our eyes so is go motion i think it's I probably that- just like a like a like a it was invented by Industrial Light and Magic, and I assume it's just like a certified, like a, a branding name. Like so, it's their process. but is that something that's like, is it not? Is it not well known, or is it not used very often? I'm just wondering because I've never heard of it. Like I said, I think it's just stop motion is the general thing. That mm-hmm. Go motion is stop motion. Okay, go motion. I have a feeling I didn't get specifically into it. I know it was invented by ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. But my guess is that it's like their like their 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 branded 
thing. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like that, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. We invented go motion and like that's the branding for this type of stop mm-hmm. motion where they add motion blur to it and they call it go motion. It's okay. not like go motion itself isn't like a term. It's probably like a yeah trademark go motion by Industrial Light and Magic or whatever. Okay, I see, and I don't think I it was used a ton because it was right around the time. It was developed right around the time and this is the tale of this film. It was developed right around the time where CG... And computer graphics were really oh. taking off. So, and we're going to post this. They did a, an original, uh, it was a test. It wasn't like what the final was going to look like. But uh-huh. they did mock-ups with this guy named Phil Tippett, who was the guy they originally hired in his department to do the go motion. Mm-hmm. Um, or And he did uh, mock-ups of the T-Rex thing on the, where the T-Rex gets out and the whole thing mm-hmm. with the flare and all that. He yeah. did that. He also did the... Uh, like mock-ups test shoots of the uh, raptor scene in the kitchen Um, and I think I don't know if you can see the raptor one but I found the the go motion like and again this is test footage this isn't like what it would have looked like yeah but uh, of the tyrannosaurus scene and it's interesting looking but it's very much looks like claymation Mm -hmm. you know what I mean Uh, so they still weren't happy Spielberg wasn't happy when he's kind of looked at the test and saw where all of it was going he's and and Tippett actually said to him like you know Computers are getting pretty good now. We probably you could probably do this with CG. We got this computer thing over here. Yeah, uh, so that's when they started trying and they started uh, testing out uh, computer generated dinosaurs mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And this is a fun fun story. Spielberg and Tippett were in a, a meeting or something, and they were watching some of the early tests of the CG. And it's a it was of a T Rex chasing a bunch of the Gallimimus or whatever, mm-hmm. which we see early in the movie. And Spielberg leaned over to Tippett and said, you're out of a job. And Tippett said, don't you mean extinct? And that <laughs> line is added to the movie. Really? There's a scene where I don't, uh, it's between Malcolm and Grant. Um, oh, that makes sense. And I think it's probably Malcolm. It's probably, I don't remember exactly what the conversation, we'll, we'll, we'll look at it when we get it. Yeah. But one of them says that to the other when they're making a quip about something. Uh, so they took that from a real life conversation between Spielberg and the the stop motion animator guy, hmm. which I thought was funny. Uh, fun casting things. William Hurt was originally was initially offered the role of Dr. Alan Grant, but turned it down without even reading the script. Harrison Ford was also also offered the role of Dr. Grant. So close to being Indiana Jones. Yeah, though. it's so close. Yeah. Sam Neill ultimately was cast as Dr. Grant like three weeks before filming began. Hmm. So. Uh, here's a fun one. Jim Carrey auditioned for the role of Dr. Ian Malcolm. Mm, I don't know if I like that. According to, I think, the casting person or somebody, some name, I'm not sure who this is, uh, uh, Jim Carrey was terrific, but uh, I think we pretty much all loved Jeff Goldblum immediately. And- <laughs> who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect casting, honestly. <laughs> it's it's probably his most iconic role. I, I say that. It's one of his most iconic. The Fly is another big one, I mm. but... Um, uh, Christina Ricci auditioned for the role of Lex Murphy, the younger, the, oh, the little girl. The little girl, yeah. I guess didn't get it. Or I don't mm. know. Uh, it was shot. The movie was filmed in Hawaii. They were thinking about filming it in Costa Rica, where mm. it actually takes place, but uh, they were worried about kind of infrastructure and mm. not being able to get you know stuff they need. And so they ultimately, uh, and Spielberg had worked in Hawaii before, so he's like, let's shoot in Hawaii. But this is kind of interesting that a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Aniki, came through during filming. Uh, passed directly over the island they were filming on. They lost a day of shooting. But 
some of the storm scenes from the movie are actual footage shot during the hurricane. Oh, that's cool. So, <laughs> or, you know, when that big storm breaks out, mm-hmm. some of it is actually from the hurricane that went through. This is interesting. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson had a, a lengthy death, death scene. So in the movie... And, and this, again, I don't think we're spoiling anything with Jurassic Park here. Yeah. Sam Jackson's character dies, but we never see it. And it's it's actually, I, I think this is a fun or a, uh, a happy accident here. We never see him die. And then we get that great reveal where his arm comes through and she thinks he's alive and his arm mm-hmm. is bitten off and, and she starts freaking out. But he, they were supposed to shoot a, a lengthy death scene where he was going to be chased and killed by raptors. But that set was destroyed by the hurricane. So they couldn't oh. film it. <laughs> and again, I think that was a happy accident. I think yeah, that the arm, that thing, arm was... thing is such a great yeah. moment and like horrifying moment that if we had watched him die, it yeah. wouldn't be nearly as impactful. It, yeah, it wouldn't have the same impact. Yeah. So, yeah, happy accident. Uh, and then this is interesting, and I'll be interested to see in relation to the book how this goes or how the how the ending of the, the book is compared to the movie. Because Spielberg supposedly not supposedly said he knew the t-rex was the real star of the movie and mm-hmm. he rewrote the ending to mm. feature her mm. um and i and I, this is why i'd be interested to see how the movie would have ended originally mm-hmm. how it originally ended because the way it does end it's kind of necessary like i you know I'm, try- yeah. I, I'm sure they could finagle some things around maybe they just don't have that last kind of they just escape before I don't know. Who knows? You know, before they end up in that room, somehow they escape without the T-Rex showing up or whatever. Yeah. But I would be interested to see how that is. And I was like, maybe it's closer to how the book is. We'll see when you get, you're not there yet. So you don't know, but uh, I'd be interested to see if maybe that ending was closer or how the book ends. Maybe that's kind of how it originally was going to end. And mm-hmm. then they wanted more T-Rex at the end. So they rewrote it to feature the T-Rex. We shall see. The more T-Rex, the better I yes. say. Yeah, and that's what Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg said. He was like, "This." And I have to imagine that because they built an animatronic T Rex. There's yeah, there's an animatronic one, and then there's obviously the CG one, and and a bunch of other. Imagine I can't imagine that that was cheap. (laughs) No, no, but see, I guess I don't think the T Rex in the final scene is animatronic at all. I think it's all CG. I I mean, Mm. we'll, we'll it'll be easier to notice when we. Watch it. Yeah. Most of the most of the animatronic T Rex stuff is like the shots where they're like in the jeeps and it's like mm-hmm. looking in the windows and you know that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. That's like a big animatronic head, I assume. Yeah. Um. But like that final scene where you know it bursts through and it, I imagine most of that's CG, so they probably didn't use the anim. We'll 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 look and see if we mm-hmm. can see any. But yeah, no, it's not cheap to build a giant animatronic T Rex <laughs> head. So, but I'm glad they did. All right, that's going to do it for the preview of Jurassic Park and the prequel to the 23rd episode. We're excited. 24th episode. I had it right at the beginning, and (laughs) thank you for correcting me. Looking forward to watching Jurassic Park again. It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. Really excited to see how it compares to the book because I have no idea. I'm really enjoying the book. Yeah, that's cool. I I wasn't sure if you would really like it. It's not generally like your necessarily wheelhouse of genre in my wheelhouse. Kind of a sci fi. uh, Not sci fi, but you know. But it it is. Kind of, yeah, sci fi. Sci fi adventure. Adventure, yeah, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it. Thriller. But no, I'm really really enjoying it, and I think you would like it too. I think I would. I think I am probably going to read it. I'm. Not reading anything currently. I just finished Princess Bride, which we're going to have a special episode. That is a good thing to mention, where we go back and revisit mm. the Princess Bride now that I've read it. 
I'm going to have to re-listen to the episode because there's things that I was reading and I'm like, how did we not talk about that? And maybe we did <laughs> and I forgot because it's been 24 episodes. Well, you know, 24 full episodes and then yeah. a bunch of prequel episodes. I may have just forgotten what it's, we discussed. Well, it's been, we're going on a year. Right. Since we started Yeah, it's been this, like a year. So. Yeah. And it's been, yeah, it's like almost 60 total episodes or something yeah. like that so far. Um, but I think that would be a good, maybe, maybe that'll be perfect. We'll do it on the year. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I don't want to wait too long, though. We'll see. And when would the year be? It's August, I think, or July. We started in July. So sometime. maybe. We'll see. So. We're going to have a lot of other stuff coming out right around that yeah. time. So so uh, be looking forward to that. Yeah. We're definitely going to have a Revisiting the Princess Bride. Because, boy, that was, a, that was a fun book. It was an interesting book. <laughs> and I want to talk about the sequel. Because you didn't read it. I didn't read it, but I could go back and read it. Because it's only like It's not what you think it is. It's very strange. (laughs) It's very strange. I also didn't read all of it. I skimmed it. But I'm going to reread all of it because it's very interesting. So, until next time, keep reading books. Keep watching movies. Keep checking us out on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Goodreads. Reddit. I'm failing at putting up posts, but I will get back to that. Also, do us a favor, hit us up with likes, reviews, not likes, that's not a thing. Reviews, uh, ratings, and subscriptions, uh, wherever you get us from. It's very helpful. We're up to like 23 or 24 reviews on iTunes, which is awesome. Until next time, keep reading books, keep watching movies, keep being awesome. Yeah, that's, that's how I end it.